Welcome to the Michelle Miano Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. Thank you for joining us today. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers. Now, the Commonwealth Club is producing hundreds of programs a year, even during the pandemic. So head over to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for all upcoming programs, plus podcasts and video of past events. Today's program is part of our Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guests today. So you're in for a good conversation, and it's my pleasure now to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us today for an exciting discussion. We have some great speakers. We'll discuss who is really behind America's appetite for foods from around the world and we will also explore in depth how food journalism, food media, and the food establishment impacted many voices, particularly immigrant women who have shaped and revolutionized the way we eat today. Our guests today include Reem Asil, who's the chef and owner of Reem's California and Reem's California uh, Mission. We also have Alicia Kennedy, who's writer and author from the desk of Alicia Kennedy newsletter. And Mayuk Sen, who's the author of the book that we'll be discussing today. It's our central focal point of Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I'm so excited for this conversation. I mean, I love food. I love talking about food. And I love, uh, you know, just being very serious and, and political about the food that we eat. Why don't we start with Mayuk and the book? Like what inspired you to write the book, to write it in this way? And also, you know, the, the people that you chose to profile in this book. Totally. Yeah. So I'm going to try my best to keep this, uh, you know, not be too garrulous here in my answer to you. Uh, but, uh, the idea for this book really came to me back in 2017 when I was a 25-year-old staff writer at a site called Food52. And uh, back then, I was writing a lot of stories on figures in the food world who belonged to marginalized communities. Oftentimes, they were uh, women of color, people of color more generally, queer people, immigrants, immigrants of color, sometimes folks who belonged to more than one of those groups. And what I was trying to do was... Uh, recirculate their legacies and honor them in a way that I felt as though American cultural memory may have not, uh, because, you know, there are certain figures who immediately leap to mind for uh, the casual reader, let's say, like Julia Child, for example, who are instrumental to the way that Americans cook and eat today, yet there's so many other names whom that casual reader does not know. Uh, And so a friend of mine looked at my budding body of work at Food 52 and was like, huh, I wonder if there's a larger project in here about immigration and food. And maybe there's a way to, you know, bring all these stories together. And I was like, I'm 12, 25 years old. I am too young to write a book, you know, so I put it in my back pocket and I was like, one day. Uh, fast forward one year later, when I'm the ripe old age of 26, I'm like, oh, actually, maybe I can write a book now, you know, and I had noticed over the course of that year, Uh, the proliferation of certain talking points within the American food media that were along the lines of immigrants get the job done and immigrants feed America. And, you know, I'll be charitable here and say that uh, those 
that might have been well-intentioned coming from these uh, usually white-led publications, yet I found uh, the proliferation of these talking points so unsettling because to me, they uh, you know continue to privilege a certain kind of consumer whom the American food media has privileged for so long, and that is someone who's white, uh, middle to upper middle class, and it's basically saying that uh, you know immigrants to have any value or worth at all, they must uh, you know their their value must be measured based on their productivity. And I found that so disturbing, especially as someone who was born to immigrants uh, in this country. And so I felt as though the best way for me to combat it within my very limited skill set as a storyteller was to tell the stories of uh, individual immigrants who had uh, labored and really changed the way that America eats uh, in the most granular way possible. And that would be one small step in uh, making sure uh, the creative aspirations, uh, let's say, of immigrants was not abstracted in the way that I'd seen it uh, so often in the American food media. So that's where this book began. Uh, and I sold it at the end of 2018. And the seven women I had in my proposal stage are not the seven women who ended up being in this book because I realized when I began writing that I needed to, you know, I had chosen so many subjects who were no longer with us. And as a result, uh, I needed to seek out uh, women who had left behind materials uh, that presented them speaking in their own voices. So those were usually memoirs, cookbooks with memoiristic passages or a wealth of interviews they'd given to the press that really allowed me to see how they wanted uh, the world around them and the public to perceive them. And that was a challenge because I realized that uh, the women whose story, who could afford to have their stories recorded at all in that way through memoir, for example, possess certain material privileges. Uh, so that was a struggle, but I made it happen. <laughs> you also, I mean, kind of front and center, right from the beginning of the book, right from the introduction, um, you're, you're addressing the fact that you're getting into the large systemic and conceptual issues that you've already touched on here. Um, was that a hard sell when you were taking this to the publisher or was the public or publishers kind of like, yeah, there's, a, there's, forgive the term, there's an appetite for this now and not just talking about food or something like that. Yeah. You know, um, I got some, uh, I was very fortunate to get, uh, this book, uh, going into auction, which is nice. Uh, yet I got a lot of reluctance from food, uh, publishers in general, ones who were uh, typically just putting out cookbooks and, uh, you know, very, uh, little, narrative food nonfiction. Uh, I think the absence of recipes, for example, uh, in my book was something that really deterred a lot of publishers um, from taking my book on because they felt as though uh, the presence of any recipes at all would be a way to ensure this book's commercial viability. And what I wanted to really prove in this book is that uh, food writing does not necessarily need that service aspect to mean anything to the general reader, you know. Uh, but it was tough, certainly, and I think I got uh, more interest from non-food publishers in this book uh, than I did with, from food publishers. But I don't know, that was three years ago, and the events of the past few years have cer certainly uh, changed the landscape in some ways. I won't, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little cynical about how much has changed for the better, or, uh, you know, long term, uh, but uh, perhaps it would be easier to sell this book now. Let's have a group discussion about um, the way that we talk about food, but particularly how, yes, women, immigrant chefs, I mean, we've had to change not just the recipe, but even the description of the food that we cook to appease somebody. Who is it? Who makes these decisions? Uh, but we'd like to hear from the entire panel in you know, the problems of having to change the way we describe our food. 
And, you know, for example, uh, I, I have so much respect for Reem because calling Arab food Arab food shouldn't be a problem, but why is it a problem? <laughs> Let's have an open discussion about, you know, the, the history of having the change the way that we talk about the food that we cook. Who'd like to open up with some thoughts? Alicia? Sure. Well, I mean, I, as not a restaurant chef, nor, you know, um, someone who, who is naming food necessarily, um, it's not uh, a concern I personally have to deal with. Um, but in my understanding and experience of food media, a lot of the, there's a lot of pressure to cater to a, a middle white American gaze that's understood as neutral um, in U.S. food media, and and so there's always this this push and pull to uh, make sure everything is accessible. Um, but when when the word accessible is used, I don't think that people really are engaging with the idea of whose ac whose access is being privileged. And and this is one of those things that my as Mayuk mentioned is maybe changing, but we haven't seen. Um, at the end, you know, we haven't really seen that change in a real way. And I, I think Reem can speak to the, the concrete ways in which that affects her, her own business. Yeah, um, this is obviously the crux of the question of what happens when um, it's the intersection of food, but also livelihood, right? Um, and the fact that we are sort of living in the land, <laughs> the belly of the beast in the land of consumption um, and food and culture definitely sort of fall under that, that bucket, uh, unfortunately. And so when I sort of approached, you know, Reams for me is, is, a, is a lifelong project. It was never meant to just be a restaurant, but sort of as a, uh, as I grew, it became sort of a source of livelihood, not just for myself, but um, a whole gamut of people around me, a whole ecosystem um, of, of uh, workers, right? Um, and so it was important to kind of figure out sort of here's Reem and here's my identity and what I'm trying to, to solve in terms of consciousness raising around my culture and uh, in the context of the U.S., but then also here's what is needed to have a successful business. And those things um, didn't always, <laughs> they, you know, they didn't always sort of align. Um, however, I think that, uh, I think as Mayu kind of said, even in the last, you know, uh, five to six years, the landscape has changed in terms of consumers and what people want and what people want to be a part of. Uh, and I think that me being unapologetic, uh, leading with my Arab identity, leading with my politics, um, actually turned out to be successful for my business. Um, and that does speak to sort of where where the where people are at um, across uh, the spectrum, right, of the uh, uh, of access, so to speak. Um, in the beginning, I was like, yeah, I really want to, uh, I wanted the Trojan horse effect of, you know, I remember telling my mom, we're going to say Arab, we're going to mainstream. I was like, we're going to mainstream that shit, for lack of a better word. Like, to be Arab is to be cool. But I think that, um, you know, the media, food media is not, it's, it's a microcosm of 
the broader media here in the U.S. are going to try to take that uh, and sterilize it a little bit. And I didn't want that to happen. And I do feel like that started to happen for me um, as I sort of started to get, uh, you know, media started to sort of follow reams and my path. And um, it is this sort of uncomfortable friction of I want to be on the fringes, but I want to be accessible. I don't want um, to lose the meaning of, you know, what what my food represents. So how do I sort of uh, play that balance? <laughs> and um, yeah, we're still trying to figure out, figure that out. We're still trying to sort of push the envelope. Uh, I think the one thing that's changed of the pandemic is that we're much, much less Trojan horse-like. We want to make everything accessible and much more just explicit about our politics. And so far that we've tread the waters. Uh, hopefully that will continue. Um, and, you know, I'm not alone. I feel like that's part of that is being sort of part of this community of trailblazers like this book. I mean, this book really got me upset <laughs> and happy and all the things at the same time, because I could see myself and all these women who came before me. And I think that I've been afforded privileges that they didn't have um, because of the landscape and how it's changed. So I'll stop there. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I'm reminded of the story of one of the women in my book, uh, just in hearing both these responses. And that's the story of Najmi Abad Monglij, who was a refugee from Iran, who uh, fled to France initially around the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, and then in the early 80s, uh, came to America because she realized that uh, France was not necessarily the most hospitable place to raise her two young sons. And uh, upon coming to America, you know, she had already published an Iranian cookbook back in France. She was credentialed in all the right ways uh, to uh, basically, she wanted to, uh, when she came to America, publish her own English language Iranian cookbook. Yet, upon sending out query letters to different publishers, uh, she got uh, a lot of polite rejections if she got any responses at all. And this was, you know, again, just years after the Iranian Revolution. And in addition to that, uh, you know, the uh, Iran hostage crisis cast a very long shadow. And so, Initially, what she did was she and her husband, Mohammed, decided to self-publish uh, their own uh, cookbooks by Najmieh. They just started their own publishing house. They, you know, raised enough capital to do so. And that was very challenging for them, of course. Yet they kind of, uh, you know, they reached an impasse when it came to titling the book because they were not sure whether to refer to the book as uh, one on Iranian food or Persian food because, you know, Iranian uh, within the white American gays, let's say, had become a sort of dirty word, you know, in the early 80s in the landscape in which she was working. And Persian, uh, you know, may have been a bit of a safer choice, you know, it may have uh, ensured that her book would have a wider audience, uh, certainly an audience beyond the Iranian diaspora. And eventually what happened is the subtitle that she chose, uh, you know, included both the word Persian and Iranian. And so she basically owned, you know, a very proudly her Iranian identity and her Iranian heritage. And eventually, you know, as the decades went on, her audience would widen beyond the Iranian diaspora. Yet I do wonder, had she 
chosen the understandable and easy path of just labeling her food and cookbook Persian back in the 80s, maybe her audience would have looked different immediately and would have gone beyond the Iranian diaspora immediately. Who knows? Well, that kind of touches on something that, and then Reen had mentioned something in that, this area too. So I'm kind of want to get all of your, your responses on this. And that is, we've, we've kind of touched on the changing audience and, and you kind of, the, let's just kind of say writ large, American, the changing American consumer or eater or whatever. Is that changing because more of it is being educated to appreciate other foods or is it changing because literally the complexion of the American uh, population is changing and, and there are more immigrants into it. And, you know, it, it, what do you think is, is behind the change and what do you think is changing? You know, I'll start. Um, I will just say that, uh, you know, for a lot of the women in this book, uh, especially the ones who are working right around the time of World War II and, you know, in the decades following that, like, uh, you know, around the time of 1965's Heart Seller Act, which was in many ways a real landmark, uh, you know, uh, immigration law. Uh, a lot of these women did find themselves uh, working for a very specific gaze and writing for a very specific audience. And that is that very white, middle top or middle class consumer um, whom I was referencing earlier. Yet at as time went on, I think a lot of the women in this book especially realized that, you know, just confining your work to that uh, audience that some may call mainstream, for example, or the dominant culture, let's say, was not the only path towards uh you know, uh, financial stability, uh, for lack of better term. And, you know, one of the women who really realized that was uh, Najmi Bhatmanglij, whom I just mentioned. Uh, you know, she was very much writing for the Iranian diaspora, and that is where she found uh, her most devoted audience at first, and then eventually the audience widened. And uh, the same goes for uh, the subject of my final chapter, uh, Norma Shirley, who was a Jamaican-born uh, Black female chef who try to uh, open her own restaurant uh, that expressed her culinary vision without filter in the early 1980s, uh, New York. And uh, that uh, very vision was uh, making Jamaican food with a, or, sorry, French food with Jamaican flair is how she put it at one point. Yet it was impossible her, for her to secure enough uh, access to capital to make that dream a reality. And so what she did instead was she returned to Jamaica and she realized her vision by cooking for her own people. And that was her path to success. And so I think that, you know, as time has gone on and, you know, with the advent of, let's say, social media and what it's done to widen uh, certain audiences beyond that kind of a white uh, middle top or middle class consumer, uh, you see maybe fewer uh, folks who are culinary creatives um, who are solely creating uh, for that kind of consumer. Uh, but I do think also, you know, this country, uh, the complexion is changing, as you said earlier, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of food journalists like myself may no longer be presuming that majority white audience that, you know, you may have maybe five, six years ago. So. Well, so there, you're talking especially about the people coming in post-World War II and, and for decades after that, that was like the part of the time of of industrialization of, of corporatization of whatever we can package into this tinfoil thing and freeze and ship across the country and it's going to taste the same for everybody and it's not going to upset anyone so it's not going to have much taste at all and that 
so wonderfully has been going away over the past few decades. I, I think, you know, it was so much more introduction of not just from the organics, but just, you know, the, the shopping local and the eating local and, and obviously the, the, the elevating of a lot of different chefs. Um, so it, 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 it I, I'm kind of thinking there may be a couple strands here that are coming together at the same time. Alicia, it looks like you wanted to say something. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I was going to say something about what you just said, which is that I think that people are in the media a little bit more open to new voices, especially open to new foods. I think we've seen a lot of the idea that people accept a cuisine before they accept people and they accept changes in what they eat before they accept changes politically and that relate to these things. And so um, I do think that food media is shifting in some ways, but it's not shifting in the, in, when we talk about mainstream food media as much around the, the discussion of power structures, you know, um, the, the continued effects of industrialization of agriculture. You know, I know you're in California, um, so you're lucky, <laughs> but for a lot of us, we are not so lucky. And so, um, you know, talking about, you know, the, the government subsidies that really affect what most people are eating, you know, what's genetically modified ingredients are in, I think, 75% of processed foods. Um, you know, there, there are these conversations happening, but they are, they are still not, they're still, you know, on the sidelines of the mainstream conversation. And so I think that it, it definitely shows that we, we, we open up the gates a little bit, but very, very slowly, very minimally. Yeah. Yeah. I would just add to that, that, I mean, these things don't come in a vacuum. So <laughs> um, there's a lot of sort of organizing that's happening, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. context to get us to where we are today. Um, so I'm certainly sort of aware of my privilege in that, that wasn't afforded to, you know, the Arabs who came before me who did package their food in the under the guise of Greek or Middle Eastern or whatever, Mediterranean or whatever, like that. Um, all of those things matter. Oh, did I freeze? Can you guys hear me? You froze. Okay. As long as I didn't freeze. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think the thing that I struggle with is this, uh, what I, what I hope um, is that I feel like a lot of the women in your book, Mayuk, they wanted to, um, they want to express themselves. Yes. There was the, like, we need to make a livelihood, but um, people are not, I, I don't want to sell my culture as a product, if that makes any sense. Like, I think that people are looking, they're not just looking for uh, a new thing or a discovery. I mean, certainly there is that group of people who are going to buy cookbooks because they want to learn about a new cuisine. But for me, the way that I've approached this is just to be authentically me. And I think that people are looking for things that are more fluid and outside the box where they can see a little bit of themselves in that thing. Um, so as opposed to the like, the fundamentals in Arab cooking, I'm like, the cookbook I'm coming out with is like, here's me, I'm an Arab woman. And you can see yourself in that too, you know? So I, I do think that people are looking for reflections of them themselves in whatever that cuisine is. And I'm hoping that that is where we're moving towards a sort of more fluid society where people have intersection of identity 
And they're like, yeah, I can relate to that. Or this is interesting. It's not like I just want to take on a new cuisine because it's this package thing that I don't know about. Um, so that, I, that I, that's how my restaurants function. I've always approached it. It's not to make it accessible so that I don't scare them away, but it's to make them see something in themselves when they walk into my restaurant. That Arab hospitality is for everyone, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, not to sound cliche, but um, yeah. So I'm hoping that we're sort of moving in that direction and that's what is driving people's consumption to some extent. I was going to jump off that if that's okay, not to yap on or whatever. So excuse me, but uh, you know, I'm just reminded of the story of another one of the women in my book, just uh, listening to what Reem had to say. And that is Elena Zalieta, who was actually based in the Bay area for most of her uh, professional life. Uh, she was originally born in Mexico yet uh, came here uh, to America around the time of the Mexican revolution and, uh, you know, at first, uh, so she was uh, a cookbook author and in addition to being a television cooking host and, uh, you know, owning restaurants and so on. And a lot of her early cookbooks, uh, starting in the 1940s, they were uh, solely focused on the Mexican and Spanish origin uh, recipes of her youth. Yet over time, she started to see California as her real home. And her cookbooks began to reflect that sense of place and that shifting sense of place. And her final few books, you know, are more focused on what she called California cuisine. And they would borrow techniques and ingredients from Japanese and Italian culinary traditions, you know, and other traditions that uh, immigrant populations within California, uh, you know, really celebrated. And uh, my hypothesis in my book is that that may be one reason why Elena Zalieta is not a household name these days, in spite of the fact that, you know, she accomplished so much and she was a star of her time. There may have been an expectation, you know, back in the 1940s and just, you know, throughout the 20th century for someone like Elena Zalieta to be the ambassador of her, of the cuisine of her country of origin, right? Even if her creative aspirations were more nuanced and a bit different, and they reflected the fact that she called America home and she had certain experiences in America that shaped her palate and the way that she thought about food. Yet those uh, voices, at least in the past, may not uh, be as easily remembered as uh, someone who is uh, tasked with having that sort of ambassadorial role for a uh, the cuisine of their country of origin. And so I hope that's changing, like Reem said, you know. And one of the thoughts that popped up in my mind while reading the book and then also um, merging all three of your experiences, I was thinking about authenticity. Reem had brought that up, right? But why authenticity is considered at times controversial when it comes to, you know, food or um, non-American food, you should say, or chefs who are cooking ethnic food. Uh, but my my question to the three of you is, you know, who who gets to become an author? Who gets to to be a food journalist? You know that they take seriously. Like who makes these <laughs> decisions? Because as a consumer, I'm always chasing, you know, the authentic voices, the genuine voices. I want to know the history of uh, the of the chef who's cooking the food that. I want to try or I want to eat. I really don't want it watered down and I would not want their voices changed. But apparently there's somebody or someone or something, an establishment 
that gets to market what we eat. Um, I'd love for, for all of you to add your thoughts on it, and especially, you know, Alicia in food media, food journalism, and not, you know, in creating space for some of our most authentic and genuine chefs or food people. <laughs> well, yeah, for me, I had to kind of leave established outlets in order to start a newsletter to talk about the issues that I wanted to talk about and talk to the people that I wanted to talk to about those issues, you know, and in a really candid way. I've interviewed, obviously, both Reem and Mayuk, and I think that we had conversations that would literally never be published in a food magazine in both cases. And and so that's what I've always tried to cultivate in my, in my work is a space for people's actual perspectives and actual totalities and and like those intersectional identities that Reem was talking about where you're not you don't have to be put on the performance of who that's packaged of who you're supposed to be you just need to be you and I think that that's something that's that's just not cultivated in in mainstream media and that's because that's by design you know a magazine is selling itself as a brand you know when I worked at Time Inc. isn't Time Inc. anymore. But when I was at Time Inc., they were like the brand. They call each magazine a brand. They don't call it a magazine. You know, it's not like a publication. They call it a brand. And so it's selling that perspective. It's selling that lifestyle to you. And so now we're finally seeing spaces open up in food journalism where maybe we're all still selling a brand, but at least it's a different brand. You know, there's Vittles out of London. That's another newsletter that, you know, publishes writing specifically from the UK, but from all over the world and from perspectives from all over the world, really global in its scope. There's Whetstone um, from Stephen Satterfield that, you know, they have a whole South Asian vertical to cover different issues from that part of the, the world. And so I think that the plurality of voices that's coming out now and the plurality of perspectives is really going to, I hope, break things open for people who are looking for that, that more genuine kind of um, perspective and engagement with food culture. Um, because I, I still think that, you know, when you're, we're talking about the big, the big outlets, they're really constrained by advertising still. They're really constrained by, you know, when you have a huge audience, that means you also have a very, you have to kind of find the middle of that audience and, and not make them too angry on either side. And so it, it can be really difficult to do new things in that space. And, and so I think that, yeah, uh, we're independent media in food, in food is, is, really breaking things open now, I hope, and, and giving new space for people who haven't felt connected to the, the more mainstream outlets. Yeah, you know, I mean, so much of what you just said mirrors my own experience as someone practicing in the field or whatever for five years now, uh, because like I said at the top of this conversation, uh, I got my start at a site called Food 52. And, you know, when I first began writing for them, uh, and I was quite open about this, uh, I got really ruthless comments from readers who were just like, why'd you hire this, you know, this child, you know, like, we want our site back, we want our recipes back, you know, because they come to a food website for a very specific purpose. And that is to get their mind off of the uh, chaos of the world. And sometimes those uh, readers might be on the right side of the political spectrum, let's say. Uh, and it is tough because, uh, you know, this industry, uh, media and food media specifically, are both quite exclusionary. Uh, 
in many ways, you know, racially, uh, you know, class-wise, et cetera. And, you know, I do carry certain privileges in that, you know, um, I went to the right school that allowed me easy entry and access into an industry like this. And I present to this world as a man, and that affords me certain privileges in spite of the fact that I'm brown. Yet, when I first got here, I found myself so confused because my own viewpoints uh, did not necessarily have a home in the publications that I was writing for. And then as a result, I had to to borrow a word that uh, Reem used earlier. I had to sterilize my own voice, essentially, you know, and uh, really, you know, write for as wide an audience as possible. Those folks who might get really angry at the fact that, you know, I am writing for a site like Food 52, while people who belong to my own community and whose politics align with my own. And that's really tough, you know, especially if you do belong to a marginalized community. Uh, and I really, really struggled with that at first. And I'm sure that someone can look at the broad contours of my CV and say, he's someone who, you know, he walked a very traditional path in this industry because he got some sort of institutional recognition early on. And he got, you know, uh, he basically made those white institutions quite happy. Yet I was doing that because I needed to survive, you know, and uh, getting that opened up access to capital and opportunity that otherwise would not have been afforded to me as a result of just who I am in this world. And so I do hope, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about this trajectory as I was writing this book. And I really hope that food journalists who belong to younger generations than I do will not have to have these same sorts of struggles or, you know, work to appease certain awards bodies or get in the right anthologies just for them to make enough, uh, you know, money to survive in this industry and for their voices to be heard, uh, you know, without filter and without the constraints that a more traditional publication might impose upon them. And I do think over the past year, as Alicia said, uh, there has been uh, an increased awareness of independent food media like Vittles, like Whetstone, uh, which is, I think is, or at least I hope, uh, you know, convincing uh, younger or emerging food writers that, you know, you don't necessarily have to write for a big paper to have made it. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, it's just like a, a, such a funny thing for me. You know, I don't take, I don't take any, I feel like I, I worked really hard, but I, I got lucky to be in a time where all these emerging food writers were kind of covering my story. And, you know, I don't take any of that for granted. It's, it's funny when people are like, oh, Reem, you're like a media darling, you know? I mean, if you look at my website, I've been covered by so many people and yet you know my restaurant still struggles you know I'm still struggling emotionally um like none of it actually ended up in material benefits for me um which was sort of the realization that I had that like money I mean that media didn't get me access to the real things I needed to survive and I think that is the big like people want to cover these stories because they're interesting but Tomorrow, there'll be yesterday's news. You have to kind of stay. And I didn't love, you know, I think you start to become a token of <laughs> um, if you sort of only rely on that organic um, media. And I think for me, that was something that I struggled with as sort of uh, I became uh, that I had more national attention. And I remember when people were like, you need to write a cookbook. That's your next thing. And I was like, for like two years, 
didn't do it because I wanted to do it on my own terms. And I, I sort of found that um, the story that was being painted that, that really kind of compelled me to write a cookbook was that I became like that sort of brown girl to like that brown girl makes it in the food industry with the unconventional path. Anyone can make it. I like, as a result, I'm legitimizing the very system that I'm, don't, you know, that I want to change. And so that is sort of what finally compelled me of like, I'm starting to lose my own narrative, even when I have my own narrative, because I'm legitimizing this other meta narrative. Um, but it was hard. I tried to sell a, a more autobiographical book and I wasn't important enough. People just wanted the recipes. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was a real struggle. And luckily, I mean, the the book is is a hybrid of the two, um, and hopefully people will receive it. But sort of even with someone who's considered a media darling, it's like I'm still not important enough um, because it doesn't really sell the thing that they want to sell. And so um, I think until we sort of create our own medium outlets like this, like independent media by us, for us, <laughs> um, that is going to continue to be a struggle that um, that I have to navigate as a public figure. Um, so I do gravitate towards the people who share my values when I choose now where I want to be featured or who where I want to kind of give energy. Um, and that's that's hard. That's hard when a lot of people are coming your way and want to cover your story. Um, that seems seemingly harmless, but you have to kind of figure out what are the sort of byproducts of doing that. So, yeah. But definitely the not turning to material benefits is a big thing that we have to talk about, you know, uh, especially for women, especially for gender nonconforming folks, especially for women of color. Um, that, that has been the biggest sort of uh, contradiction that I've seen with my male counterparts. So. You've talked about how you are presenting your food and, and, and your culture in your in your restaurants. Tell us about your customers. Are they coming? I mean, you know, you see them. Are they folks for whom this is their food, or is this? Are they testing it for something new? You know, what? Who who are you attracting to? Your it's so interesting you say this. We we have the situation where I mean, we know who our customer is, and 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 I and I would say you know. Uh, a good chunk of it is still sort of um, that 35 to 45 range or that, you know, mid 30s range white woman um, who, you know, because we live in the Bay Area, um, who can afford and has enough disposable income to afford our food. Um, that said, we have a variety of segments of our market. We have our community. We have our regulars, people in our neighborhood that keep reams uh, thriving. Uh, but you can tell when we've been in certain publications, how our customer base changes and the values that they bring in and what they, you know, what they value. And it's, you know, when we're, when we hit like a top 10 list in food and wine, our customer is not as nice, not as understanding, um, is there for a transactional relationship. And to me, that is like very telling of, you know, what kind of food media we want and what is going to sustain us. Um, 
So I, I just find that very interesting for us. You know, what we're trying to do is build deep with the communities in our, you know, in the places that we're in and the neighborhoods that we're in. Um, but to thrive as a restaurant, you know, you need to have that consumer with the disposable income that is going to, even if they don't like it, because those tend to be the most stingiest ones, <laughs> uh, spend enough money so that we can pay our workers livable wages. So it's so interesting you, you, you say that because I literally had one of the questions written down was, is that different to be serving food to say a first time customer, you know, preparing and serving food to that person than it is to someone who comes to your restaurant every week and you know them by name and yes. they're like, Oh, I want, you know, and, and it, you, you absolutely. But I do think that the common thing that is most of the people that come into Reams has heard of Reams before. They don't just stumble upon Reams. So naturally they're going to be a values driven customer if, if they've read anything about Reams which is awesome. You know, like that's what we want. We want people to shop with their values and we're inviting them in. This is not just your space. This is our space. This is the space in the neighborhood that you're in. Like we force people to engage with everything in that space. And that, you know, obviously the pandemic has uh, prevented us from doing that in the physical sense, but that is sort of how we present in the media, you know, who we choose, what events we choose to be a part of, how, you know, what, what talks that I choose to engage with and so on and so forth. I wanted to, I wanted to ask um, a, a, a question. I mean, I have, I have so many questions. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my notes very quickly here. Um, I can't help but bring up the pandemic and we you know in the book we talk a whole lot through american history through history political history of the shared struggles that the women had faced and we continue to face that even today i can't imagine what the pandemic did to set us all the way back but um, this is kind of a, a, a challenging question but what would we what do we what would we need to do to support women in the food industry what are some of the specific changes, like if you can even actually pinpoint it, that would alleviate some of these struggles that oftentimes the mainstream media does not want to talk about? I don't know if anyone's stepping in. Uh, well, I mean, I was going to say, you know, so much, so many of the things that I think would make everyone's lives better would make women's lives better in the restaurant industry you know, are the things that we're not providing to all of our, you know, we're not, we don't have um, nationalized health care, we don't have a, a livable minimum wage, we don't have, um, you know, proper paid parental leave. There are so many things that we don't provide to people that would make everyone's lives better, would make everyone's lives better in the restaurant industry, for sure would make everyone's lives uh, more livable in terms of their access to good food in general as well. And so um, I, I think that it's it's definitely important to, to think about the fact that, you know, the restaurant industry and the food industry isn't always siloed from the rest of society in the way that we sometimes talk about it or think about it, you know. Um, you, the, the, the livelihood and the well-being of a restaurant worker has a lot to do with, with the livelihood and well-being of me as, as a creative worker or, you know, someone else as, as any, any worker. I think we, that's, that's a, the way I think of it, at least these days. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with Alicia. Sorry, Reem, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say I'm with Alicia, you know, uh, universal health care, for example, you know, and all those other barriers that Alicia just mentioned, I think, uh, would do a great deal to uh, at least chip away at some of those barriers that are keeping uh, certain voices from uh, reaching wider audiences in the food world, certainly. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of write this in the book, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, in my afterword, I say that although these are systems-wide issues that require systems-wide solutions, uh, and therefore the onus should not be on the consumer necessarily, I don't want the consumer to walk away from my book feeling completely powerless. And I think one thing that, you know, our audience members can do today if they feel, you know, as passionately as the panelists do about uh, these very topics and issues is to make sure that you are routing whatever little money you do possess, or unless you do have a lot of disposable income, like some of Reem's customers do, you know, uh, to make sure that you're routing that money towards, uh, you know, independent food media or, uh, you know, food publications or creators like Alicia, for example, creative workers like Alicia, whose uh, politics are truly progressive and advocating for that better and more just world. Uh, and maybe, you know, reconsider whether you are uh, materially supporting uh, the existence of a publication that has time and time and again uh, shown that it does not necessarily care about getting the stories are rendering the stories of people from marginalized communities with care and sensitivity. And we could talk all day about how many food publications exist in that vein. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely material resources is a big piece of it. Like pay us for our time. <laughs> when you ask us um, to provide material, I mean, I think that that is a big thing was like, that was a big thing that the pandemic really, I'm like, okay, somebody's going to interview me. I'm going to think about why don't you just pay me to write this article? Or, you know, I think make spaces for more voices is a big one. Um, when uh, you're talking about workers, interview people who are on the front lines. Don't just interview sort of token spokespeople for a whole, <laughs> um, for a whole community of people. I think that that is, you know, very easy thing that media can do. Um, but as, as consumers, for sure, I think it's like asking more questions and, and definitely like the sector intersections are a really big one. Like for us at Reams, we are really trying to empower our um, workers, um, not just to take ownership of Reams, but to hopefully the skills that they're building uh, to fight for things like affordable housing, to fight for things like universal healthcare. Cause accessible transportation, all of those things. So there's the civic engagement part, but we need to be writing about food in a broader context. We shouldn't be just siloing it to food media. Like people should understand why it's important, why supporting restaurants is actually important for more societal change, right? So I think it goes both ways, um, being able to broaden the scope. Uh, not to say that food doesn't need its own niche, but Food is a universal issue, and I think the more we can, you know, connect it to issues, like Alicia does that really, really well, like take sort of a very, very non-food item and connect it back to food. Like, I think that we need to be doing more of that. So um, I, try, I certainly try to use my restaurant as a tool to talk about these larger issues that have nothing really to do with food, uh, but using it sort of as a gateway.
along the lines of the specifically the pandemic, um, Mike, you've, you've talked about and written about in the book, um, you know, the, obviously the connections to capital and, and needing these connections and just to get something going or sustaining during the pandemic, lots of businesses, but especially restaurants, as we all know, really hard hit. And I'm wondering if, because even with, a you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that the government's shoveling out the door, it still takes businesses a lot of time having to navigate, you know, getting their congressperson to contact and follow up on things and having their bank check on the status of things. And I'm wondering if uh, immigrant women and their communities as, as business entrepreneurs, are they at a disadvantage of not having as deep networks and, and no, you know, or access to the people who can then make the calls to make the calls to put the pressure on just to get something to keep the business going? Yeah, you know, it is certainly, uh, you know, per my reporting and research, both, both for this book and uh, stories that I wrote during the pandemic, I did see a lot of those very barriers, uh, you know, and uh, access to capital was so much tougher for uh, people who belong to immigrant communities just generally, and especially immigrant women, uh, because maybe they, uh, you know, did not necessarily have uh for example, uh, you know, dedicated uh, PR folks who could really advocate for them and increase their visibility in a way that might lessen uh, the, uh, you know, any any roadblocks to uh, capital, especially during such a challenging time as the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, what was really frustrating, I think, uh, just as someone who existed within the American food media uh, in spring of 2020, it was seeing so much sympathy within our industry for celebrity chefs who had to close their restaurants down or maybe, you know, had to lay their workers off, <laughs> which, you know, uh, you know, I, I saw at least at first, uh, and I'm going to be as diplomatic as I can in my criticism of uh, some of my peers and colleagues, you know, I saw a lot of sympathy directed towards celebrity chefs who were materially far more well off than their workers uh, who were laid off uh, would be, you know? And so I do hope that changes moving forward. And that I do hope that uh, it's not just uh, those celebrity chefs who are familiar names to uh, anyone who's a food enthusiast who are going to be able to, uh, you know, have a restaurant, uh, you know, after a catastrophe like the pandemic of this, uh, you know, these past two years. I also I think that's so important to discuss in terms of of what Reem was saying earlier about, you know, not seeing the cultural capital she's been granted by media translate into actual material changes in her in her livelihood. And I think that that's also something that really needs to be discussed in the food world, which is that, you know, we think that the job is done when you write a little story and you feel nice or you read a little story and you feel nice and maybe you go and you spend $30 or something, but like the, that's not where these stories end. And we have to actually have that sort of meta critique of what the cultural capital we are granting to people actually means. And that continued engagement with what that actually means, because as Reem was saying, this isn't just about one chef at each restaurant, even though we continue to put that narrative out there, even under these terrible conditions for workers. But, you know, uh, it's about a, a network and an ecosystem when you're supporting a restaurant. And so, you know, how are we engaging with that on a real level that's not just about you know, telling nice stories about women chefs or immigrant chefs, but getting them the access that these men have to get really nice stories written about them when they're in a Connecticut mansion 
and they laid off all their workers, you know, like why, why did they, why does cultural capital for a man translate into a mansion in Connecticut and cultural capital for a woman chef translate into hustling her ass off still in 2021? True that. Yeah. I was like, whoa, it's, it's, it's hot. Reem, you want to add some thoughts to this? (laughs) I think Alicia dropped the mic on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gosh. Um, as we you know wind down on our conversation, which has been so incredible, thank you all so much for your time and for Tastemakers, the book. I encourage you, if you're uh, spending time with us this afternoon, you don't have a copy, get a copy of Tastemakers. Um, but I would love to get your, your thoughts on the future kind of sort of, because, you know, Reem, I think that you inspire so many of women and immigrant chefs or people in the food industry to be more authentic with their voice, uh, which could then, you know, ignite an entire movement on its own if it hasn't done so already. But uh, also with Mayuk, with this, with this book and, and challenging us to really not erase the people who have co- contributed so much to the way that we eat here in the country, but to think deeply also of how politics impact us. Um, the food establishment may not change or we might not have much confidence in them you know, changing the way they do things because of their reliance on capitalism. But what are your thoughts on what the, the future could look like if, if we just do what you all are doing, creating the space for our community to grow? I could start. Um, I think, yeah, I never wanted to do this work forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really inspired by a younger generation of folks that are way more creative than me in my organizing days. Um, I'm a movement builder. And um, yeah, I'm really uh, excited for the fertile ground that we're building for more localized, resilient uh, <laughs> ecosystems. The people who come out of this more creative, uh, you're seeing it now. Uh, towards a regenerative economy in which, you know, you just have small communities of people really building up their resiliency and that, you know, a multitude of voices are are out there. And so that we can be more creative. We can be more, for lack of a better word, resilient um, when we face hardships because this pandemic is just the beginning. This is unfortunately, um, you know, we are going to, struggle with uh, the impacts of disaster capitalism, climate change, all these things. So I'm really, really excited about sort of the fertile ground that at least, you know, on my little local (laughs) corner of the world, uh, trying to build in my workers, um, maybe inspire other business owners to build in their workers and so on and so forth. So it's not just a few voices uh, I was really excited when, after Reams, you know, had been in the landscape, in the in the media for a good year or two, that other um, Palestinian cuisine, Arab cuisine, started to pop up in other parts of the country. Um, I'm not going to claim that, but I like I I like to hope that I'm, you know, that there's there's some making of space for other people to not be in the shadows anymore. Um, And so if we can do that for one another, if we can kind of really build each other up, um, I think that there is a a stronger, more resilient future uh, for those of us who've been on the margins for a really long time. 
Yeah, uh, not to beat a dead horse, uh, but I will say that, you know, to me, a thriving future would uh, just involve a lot of independent food media. Now, I would love, uh, you know, 10 different whetstones and 10 different fiddles that are so influential and have such wide reach that they render, uh, you know, these more stodgy traditional institutions and publications obsolete because that is where I'm investing my hope, like in independent food media, I mean, uh, you know, for really progressive, uh, you know, writing to exist and live. And, you know, uh, in my job as a professor at uh, NYU, you know, I tell my students all the time that, you know, uh, like I said earlier, you don't need to aspire to write for this big, uh, you know, newspaper anymore to feel like you've made it. You know, I want you to aspire to write for one of these independent publications that will not bulldoze over your voice and, uh, you know, your politics uh, just to fit some sort of a institutional mold. Um, in addition to that, I really do hope, and I write this in the book, that, you know, first of all, I hope that uh, younger, more talented, more hardworking uh, writers uh, than me uh, will write better versions of this book, especially ones that, uh, you know, focus on the stories of women who did not have the class privileges that a lot of the women in this book did, because, you know, uh, I said this uh, near the start of this conversation, but a lot of these women, you know, they had, uh, you know, they could afford to write memoirs and, you know, they'd had, had access to publishing channels. And there's so many stories I wish I could have told with care and tenderness that I was not able to just because these women, some of these women I wanted to write about were no longer around to speak for themselves. And they did not leave behind uh, those sorts of uh, texts that presented them speaking in their own voices. And so I do hope that, you know, whomever holds capital, uh, you know, in uh, the food media, food publishing landscape moving forward is more conscientious of who it gives opportunities uh, to tell their own stories. And I hope that, uh, you know, those figures might come from, uh, you know, outside the middle to upper middle classes, uh, because historically, uh, that certainly has not been the case. And I do also hope, finally, last thing, is that journalists like myself are more diligent about gaining the trust of sources from marginalized communities who might have every reason to not uh, trust the media or the food media because of, you know, all the blunders that uh, people within our industry have made historically. So those are three things that I hope happen. <laughs> we have a question not too far off that from one of our uh, viewers. Um, she asks, how can we increase the, the audience of these more progressive food media outlets? How can we get more people on board who do not seek out such perspectives already? I'd, I'd be interested in each of you responding, but in, in your response, could you also just give us a URL or a Twitter handle or whatever where our audience can get in touch with you or follow you in your work? Well, um, you know, I don't know how to make people follow these things. I've had like very organic success with my newsletter and I try and use that platform always to spotlight other people doing similar work or, or you know, um, different work, but um, also good work, obviously. And so I think that it's about sharing on social media. That's where a lot of growth happens for people, frankly. That's just that's just the truth. Uh, and, you know, forwarding emails to your friends if you read something that you like, telling writers that you, you, you like their work and encouraging them to keep going, especially if it's maybe a smaller newsletter that you've, you've liked or, or someone's Instagram account that's inspired your cooking. Um, and I am on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy and on Instagram at Alicia D. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to add to that, I would just say, uh, you know, 
open your purse. <laughs> I could truly uh, support these publications uh, materially uh, because I have seen, uh, you know, quite a few uh, independent uh, food publications put up GoFundMes. And then, you know, weeks later, we see, uh, you know, from uh, the owner of uh, that publication that, you know, they have not reached the funds that they were really expecting. And that is crucial to their survival. So, you know, again, not to repeat myself, but the onus shouldn't always fall on the consumer. But also the consumer is <laughs> uh, complicit in some ways, too. And so uh, I do hope that uh, readers will look out for, you know, if certain independent food publications are like, okay, I'm setting up this GoFundMe or this fundraising campaign to ensure uh, that this publication lives on beyond next year, that readers actually, uh, you know, support that. Because I've seen so many uh, casual readers just kind of, you know, offer uh, laments uh, after a publication has folded saying, oh, man, too bad. I liked what they were doing. It's like, well, did you did you invest time and you know what little money you might have in ensuring that it was going to survive? I I, I don't want to ask that question anymore. So, and oh, sorry, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Senator Mayuk. I am sorry, there's no other handle available. <laughs> uh, Senator M A Y U K H, and then my uh, Instagram is mayuk.sen. Well, I can't yeah. believe it. Go go ahead, Reem. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I sort of got into, I mean, obviously social media is awesome because people are reposting and all of that, but just like the people that really share your values, ask them what they're reading, you know, um, you'll you'll find um, a lot of resources just <laughs> in those conversations. Um, and uh, you can find me at uh, reem.aseel on Instagram and aseel underscore reem on uh twitter i was overly excited to remind everyone to open their wallets and purses up <laughs> as we end the program and so yes you can find these folks on twitter and social media and share the heck out of their work but also if you're in the bay area make sure you pop in to reams uh, reams california mission or reams california and go eat with intent and heart and 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 love it and support our community but also um, yeah, be a part of Alicia Kennedy's newsletter from the desk of Alicia Kennedy. And finally, as I mentioned before, get a copy of Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionize Food in America. It's more than just learning. Um, I think that it's life-changing and you know, give you some thoughts on how, how you eat, how you support our community. Thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. Back to you, John. Well, thank you again to our special guests on this Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club of California. And uh, last and not but least, thanks to all of you who are watching or listening to this program. You can find more programs again at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Have a good weekend. Stay safe. Goodbye.